Well, it's great to be back with you in this new year and uh, to resume in our study of Romans. Uh, We are going to be looking specifically at Romans 6, verses 11 through 14 today. Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. But before we get there, I'm going to have you back up. Romans 5, we're going to begin in Romans 5, verse 20. And you may be saying to me, Kevin, haven't we already done that? And I'm going to say to you, yes. But I'm also going to say to you that Romans 5, verse 20, through Romans 6, verse 14, are a continual thread and really go together very, very well, as we would expect. So we're going to go back and begin at verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, to establish more of the context. So here Paul begins in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, he, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I want us to first look at verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One very important thing to note about this verse is that it's unlike any other that Paul has written thus far in the book of Romans. So far, we've seen uh, in this wonderful book, Paul telling us facts about who God is, what he has done, and who we are. We've seen the faith of the righteous, God's wrath on unrighteousness, God's just judgment, We've looked at grace and law, circumcision and baptism, the righteousness of God through faith, how the Old Testament believer was saved, how the Old Testament, how the peace, how we have peace with God through faith in his son. So this is what he's written about thus far in the first five and a half chapters of Romans. These are what the Bible would refer to as indicatives or facts about who God is. But in verse 11... There's a call to action. There's an exhortation, what the Bible refers to as an imperative. Paul says to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. 
Now, an indicative is a statement of fact. So an indicative, an example would be God loves you. An imperative is a statement of command. So in other words, because God loves you, now you must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sinclair Ferguson writes helpfully, now here's the important part in gospel grammar. Listen to this. God's indicatives are always the basis for God's imperatives. God's indicatives are always the basis for God's imperatives. This is why we often find the word therefore in the New Testament. It's because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ that we should therefore go and respond in a certain way. What God does is his grace, the indicative, and it's the foundation of what we do in our response of faith and obedience, responding to his imperative. Take an example, for example, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19. First, the indicative statement of God's grace. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's a fact. That's an indicative. But then in the very next verse, verse 20, it says, Therefore, be reconciled to God. So the imperative is rooted in the indicative. But let me also say that the imperative is not only rooted in in the indicative, but it comes after the indicative. The imperative comes after the indicative. What's the importance there? God doesn't tell you to do something, the imperative, without first reminding you of what He has done for you, the indicative. Does that make sense? God doesn't tell you to do something imperative without first of all reminding you of what He's done for you, and his promises, which are his indicatives. So we see in verse 11 of Romans 6, Paul says to consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ, in light of everything that I've already written, he says, in this letter. We, as the modern-day reader, are to remember God's promises. Yes, of judgment to the unbeliever, but also what Paul has written thus far, his promises to us as his adopted children that we have previously discussed. So in light of this, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. John MacArthur writes, rather poignantly, for a Christian to live out the fullness of his new life in Christ, which is what we discussed earlier in Romans 6, for him to truly live as the new creation that he is, he must know and believe that he is not what he used to be. He must understand that he is not a remodeled sinner but a remade saint. He must understand that despite his present conflict with sin, he is no longer under sin's tyranny and never will be again. The true understanding of his identity is essential. And it's essential for us to understand as we go on in our study today. So how can we live in newness of life by considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ? The answer to that is by looking at what we've already looked at, what Paul has already written about, what Christ has done for us. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus and into his death. Verse 3, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 6, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 6, and death no longer has dominion over Christ or us. Verse 9, dear believer, we, we must keep this ever before us. What the Lord Jesus has brought us from and what he has brought us to. 
what he's brought us from, and what he's brought us to. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, consider this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what the Lord Jesus has done for you and for me. So in light of that, let us live for him, which is what we're going to discuss more in our study today, verses 12 through 14. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. We're alive to him who has overcome death and ascended into heaven is even now interceding for us at the right hand of God, the heavenly father. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in reference to Romans 6, 11, consider and keep constantly before you this truth about yourself. What's he saying there? We must never forget what God through Christ has done for us in delivering us from the realm of darkness and sin and into the light of his glorious son. Keep it ever before you so that we can live as becomes the followers of God. We have the Holy Spirit now to help us put off what did characterize us in our former life and to put on godly characteristics that should be characteristic of us now that this wonderful change and transformation has taken place. We see in verse 12, as we move to verse 12, another imperative. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. James Boyce would say that this section of verses really 11 to 14 deal with sanctification. And if you remember, a lot of what we've discussed so far in Romans has been justification, right? We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So now that we understand that, now we can move on to what's next. And what's next? Being sanctified, growing in holiness, becoming more Christ-like. James Boyce would uh, point out five key principles of sanctification. These are listed on your handout. First, sin is not dead in Christians, even in the most mature and pious Christians, but rather is something always to be struggled against. Let me go further with that. We must fight against sin because we are still in human form and flesh. We are still in the body and we are still sinners. We will never get rid of sin completely on this side of heaven. But praise God, we will in our state of glorification when we are with Him in heaven. Now, there are some who mistakenly believe that you can be rid of sin on earth. These people believe in a form of perfectionism. It's also referred to as complete or entire sanctification. It's been taught for many years in the Methodist church and in other similar denominations. The idea is that better Christians have reached a higher level of perfection or sanctification in which they actually do not sin. Of course, the problem with that view, if I could be blunt, is that it's not biblical. Paul writes, why would Paul write this if it's actually a biblical thing? For I do not understand, Romans 7, 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I I remember talking to a, a friend one day, years ago, who's ordained in the Wesleyan Church, and he said that he felt as if there were days that he didn't sin. 
Well, what's our answer to that as good Reformed Christians? Well, if I ever thought in my head at the end of the day, man, I've done pretty good today. I think there's, I don't think I sinned today. What's the problem with that? That's pride, which is sinful. So we sin continually, but the point of sanctification is that we sin less and less. But we will never be completely rid of sin in our current state. It is a struggle, as Boyce points out. That's actually a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because the unbeliever doesn't struggle with sin. So if you're struggling with sin, let that be some assurance that you are a believer because you're aware of your sin by the help of the Holy Spirit and you're struggling against it. It's a fight. It's a continual fight. It's a battle and it's a struggle, but we must persevere in this fight for sanctification. Secondly, sin's hold on us is in or through our bodies. What does Boyce mean by that? Well, he goes on to write, so far as that new man about whom Paul has been writing is concerned, that new creature I have become by being taken out of Adam by God and being joined to Christ, that new man is dead to sin so that sin's hold is no longer actually on me, but on my body. We see in verses 12 through 13, Paul using terms like mortal body, members of sin, or parts of the body. Thus, it is through these physical parts of our mortal bodies that sin continues to operate. Thirdly, sin can reign in or dominate our bodies. Now, to be sure, we are no longer enslaved to sin as new creatures in Christ. We have been freed from it. But sin does continue to affect our physical bodies. Why? Because though we are new creatures spiritually, we are still in the flesh physically. And we're still in the world, which is a sinful world. We will succumb to temptation. We will at times give the devil a footstool, though we need not. If this were not so, Paul would have no need to write, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Fourth, although sin can reign in or dominate our bodies, it does not need to. It certainly is possible for us to offer ourselves and our body to sin, to instruments of wickedness. But Paul is saying not to do that. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying we can present our bodies as members to God as instruments for righteousness. Why? Because of who we are in Christ, because we are dead to sin, alive to Christ. If you remember St. Augustine's, uh, or St. Augustine's, excuse me, St. Augustine's language from two weeks ago, we've been brought from a state of non posse, non pecare, not able not to sin, to now as Christians, we have become posse non pecare. What does that mean? We're able not to sin. Brothers and sisters, you in Christ are able not to sin. You know, the world will say, uh, or even some modern-day broad evangelicals, I just can't help it when I sin. No, you actually can help it. 
When I sin, I choose to sin. When you sin, you choose to sin. Paul is saying you can choose not to. How? Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit giving you the power to say no to sin. Remember, Jesus himself was tempted. Such an important verse here. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You get that? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We should write that across the forefront of our minds. We have temptations, remembering that he himself was tempted. He knows what it's like, and he helps us in our temptation. He helps us in our weakness. Fifth principle of sanctification that Boyce describes is a positive truth. He says, as Christians, we can now offer the parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. This is the very theme of what Paul is going to go on to discuss in this section of verses. So let's just go on from that and look at a few parts of the body and how they can be used as instruments of righteousness so that God can be glorified in our lives. First, let's consider the mind. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the question then becomes, what are you and I filling our minds with? We're filling our minds with something. What are we filling our minds with? Are you engrossing your mind in the daily news of the secular world, which is filled with hatred and violence and war? If so, you will likely become depressed and forget that God is sovereign and reigning over all. Are you absorbing your mind in the pop culture of the day with its latest humanistic fads? If so, you will likely become like the world, making it difficult to distinguish you from the unbeliever. Are you filling your mind in trashy romance novels or movies? If so, you will likely soon become discontent with your own life, thinking like the heathen who are portrayed on paper or in film. Instead, brothers and sisters, we need to fill our minds with heavenly things, with the Word of God, with other biblically accurate Christian literature, in godly conversation with godly people who will build you up and encourage you in your faith. If we do this, then our minds will be transformed as we are renewed, making us more wise and discerning. Well, it's not just the mind which is so important, but also the ears and the eyes. Many of you may have heard this acrostic like I did growing up, G-I-G-O. You know what that refers to? Garbage in, garbage out. What's the meaning? Well, if we let garbage in into our ears, into our eyes, and our other senses, garbage will come out. In other words, if you're continually allowing garbage, then what's going to be produced in your life is not going to be good. One study showed that young people are continually bombarded by ads to the tune of about 40,000 ads per year. 
This is through television, through social media, through billboards. They are constantly being targeted because the hedonistic culture knows that if they can control what our young people hear and see, then they can control how they'll think, right, as they get older, thus influencing the next generation. Take, for example, the stance Disney has taken on homosexuality and transgenderism. A company's views will always be revealed in the products they produce and or the services they provide. The case is true here. Disney's no different. Now children's movies, which we once thought were benign, are now filled with trans characters and homosexuality. So what are we to do as Christians? We've got to fight. We've got to fight for the souls of our children, fight for the souls of our grandchildren. We need to pay particular attention to what they watch and what they hear. But, you know, it's also for us. We must guard our ears and guard our eyes. Instead of watching a trashy television show, watch a sermon. Instead of listening to pop culture, listen to a biblically solid podcast. In this way, we'll be training our ears, we'll be training our eyes in the ways of the Lord, which will yield positive fruit in, our area, in the area of sanctification. Now, I'm cer- certainly not saying that it's wrong to watch television. I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to the movie theater, not at all. I'm just saying that it's, we need to be careful of the emphasis that we put on it and what we choose to allow in here and allow our eyes to see. Third, we need to consider our tongues. Now, James certainly discussed the importance of the tongue. We read in James 3, 5 through 6, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the entire body, setting on fire the entire courses of life, and set on fire by hell. Do we know the words of our favorite songs? more than we know the words of Scripture? Do we speak of sports more than we speak of God? Do we use our tongues for tearing others down or for building them up? Do we speak falsehood rather than speaking truth? We have to know, dear ones, that the tongue is so very important. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not true. Many of us bear testimony to the fact that it's not true. Words said to you years ago, or maybe even decades ago, still hurt today. Well, don't let other people be able to say that about you, dear Christian. Let us speak true to one another in grace. Fourth, our hands and feet are also important parts of our bodies. What do you do, or what do you choose to do with your hands? Are they idle? Well, the Bible speaks against idle hands. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Well, the inference here is that if you're not busy with your hands, you're going to be busy with something, and you're probably going to be busy meddling in other people's lives. 
We're to be busy with our hands, being productive, using our gifts to glorify God and to bless others. What about your feet? Paul writes in Romans 10, uh, 15, 15, and as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. James Boyce writes, where do your feet take you? Do you allow them to take you to where Christ is denied or blasphemed? Do, you take, do they take you to places where sin is openly practiced? Are you spending most of your time soaking up the world's entertainment or loitering in bars or the hot singles clubs? You will not grow in godliness there. On the contrary, you will fall from righteous conduct. Instead, let your feet carry you, listen to this, carry you into the company of those who love and serve the Lord. And when you get into the world, let it be for the purpose of serving the world and witnessing to its people in Christ's name. Brothers and sisters, let us present ourselves, and in fact, every part of our being to the glory of God. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So let us serve God with our minds, with our eyes and ears, with our tongues, with our hands and feet. Well, Paul concludes this section of verses with a very important statement. We read in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, it does not mean that the law has been nullified in the life of the believer. We've already talked about that in previous lessons. What Paul is saying here is that the believer's standing rests upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and not on his or her own self-righteous deeds. So it is therefore grace which reigns in the life of the believer, not sin. Now look closely at verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Will have no dominion over you. Meaning that at one time, sin did have dominion over you. Right? And when was that? It was before coming to Christ in saving faith. But now he, we who are in Christ have been set free, not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the reigning power of sin. We no longer submit to the devil, but we submit to Christ. We're no longer enslaved to sin, but rather we are free to live according to the glorious grace found in Christ Jesus. So as we leave here today, recognizing the promises that God has for us, that we as His covenant people, Paul says we are dead to sin, we are alive to Christ by our union with Christ, And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are able to say no to sin. It no longer has dominion over us, and we're able to present to God as a living sacrifice, consecrating our days to Him, that He would be glorified in our lives. May it be, even this week, even today, may that be in your life and in mine. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you, Father, for the richness of your word. We thank you so much, Father, that you don't just give us commands without, first of all, telling us who you are and what you have done for us. You're a good and gracious God, so faithful to us. Father, help us to live out our lives 
the imperatives, the commands that you give us in Scripture in light of what you have done for us, in light of the promises that are yes and amen in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would live according to your word by the help of the Holy Spirit, putting off the old, putting on the new, that we might glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.